This is an ABC podcast. My son James is three and a half and he's quite fussy on some things on some days, but he goes through phases where he'll eat everything in sight for like two days and then he won't eat anything but, you know, plain pasta and maybe a Vegemite sandwich for the next week straight. When we started solids, he would never let me feed him right from the start. Didn't want purees. We tried to let him feed himself. That wasn't happening. All he wanted was milk or yogurt. So it's hugely stressful for us as parents. We've kind of given up. We've sort of just given him what he wants within reason. A lot of things that he might have in his lunch, one week he'll eat, and then the next month it'll be like you're trying to poison him. I told you I don't like that. No, actually you, you loved it last time you had it, so you're going to have to update me daily. Hugo likes to help me in the kitchen. We make things like curry puffs or he'll make cakes or pizzas with us. And sometimes we used to make cold rolls so that he has all the different colours and so he'd put it inside a wrap. For some reason he'll eat it in a wrap. If it's not in a wrap, he wouldn't eat it. So, you know, he likes cake. That's okay, isn't it? <laughs> Probably not. From the moment your baby is born, what and how much they eat is guaranteed to top your list of things to worry about. And once they start eating solids, oh, <laughs> that's when the real fun begins. I'm Maggie Dent, and in this Parental as Anything, we are going to help you explore this fascinating window of childhood and hopefully remove some of your frustration about feeding your kids. We're going to help you make feeding time less stressful and maybe even more fun. I'm now back in the land of under fives with my grandkids and loving it. And I've noticed how they can eat so differently day by day. So some days they absolutely gobble it all up and eat all their veggies. And other days they seem to eat so little and it's such a battle. Soon we've got some fantastic tips for getting good food into your kids without it being a daily battle. But first... I'm so excited to get some family cooking lessons from Adam Liao, who I'm sure you know from Destination Flavour and MasterChef. Adam is also a dad to three beautiful children. So do your kids know that you're a really good chef and is there any expectation <laughs> at home for you to make sure the standard's pretty good? Oh, no, no. no. My, my kids are like every other kid. They'd have two-minute noodles and, and potato chips for dinner every night if they could, I guess. I've heard you chat about learning about cooking from one of your grandmothers. Can you tell me a bit about that, please? I guess food has always been a big thing in our family, and for a lot of Asian families it really is. But um, my paternal grandmother lived with us for most of my childhood, and she was the one that was mainly responsible for the cooking. So um, while mum and dad were at work, she would be the one who was at home when we got home from school, and we would get to sometimes see her preparing the evening meal and um, it wasn't exactly being taught to cook. It was, uh, I guess, being in the, in the presence of somebody cooking. I want to know what your go-to healthy meal is to feed your little ones at the end of a really busy day and one they actually eat. Literally anything. It's very, very simple. It could be, you know, I could pull a, a piece of meat or a piece of fish out of the fridge, put it in a frying pan for a little bit, turn it over once or twice and take it out and then put some vegetables on, put them, steam them, boil them, fry them, roast them, whatever, and that's a meal, you know. We're a family of Asian origin, so quite often we have rice in a rice cooker. So a bit of rice, some corn, some carrots or whatever. Broccoli is a perennial favourite for, for my kids. And then a little bit of grilled fish, very, very simply prepared, grilled with a bit of salt, 
bit of teriyaki, that kind of thing. We don't just want our kids to eat healthy food. We actually want them to have a healthy relationship with food. So how do you do that? you know, without forcing Brussels sprouts on your kids at every meal. You've just said they love broccoli and fortunately it's one of my favourite vegetables, um, but some kids hate it. So I think it's always really important to get kids away from I hate that or I, I like this because ingredients are only as good as how well you prepare them. You know, some, sometimes they may hate boiled broccoli, but what if you roasted it or what if you chopped it up really finely? You know, the, the, the actual flavour of broccoli, there's, there is nothing offensive about that. The things that people like or dislike about food tend to be not the flavour of the ingredient itself, but more how it's prepared, which means the texture of it and how it's seasoned. So if my kids don't like carrots, they'll say that and we'll often have boiled carrots for them or steamed carrots. I might just give them raw carrots or cut it finely, like julienne it or cook in a different way or mash it. You know, the, if you keep changing the texture and the, the way it presents to them, I think you can get them to like just about anything. Your three is still pretty young. So at what age do you think is a great age to get them a bit more than just watching you cook, but get involved, maybe, you know, peeling the carrots and licking a bowl. But is there an age like your oldest is six? Is, is that happening? I remember being absolutely horrified when our, our son was born, our first son, and we went to the early childhood centre and they said, no, you, what you've really got to do is make sure that they don't enter the kitchen at all, put up a barrier <laughs> to make sure that they never come in there because there's so many dangerous things. I was like, I fully understand that. I, I do it, it, understand that there's pots of boiling water and knives and things, but the idea that they should just be removed from that completely was so strange to me and, and we never did it. Um, <laughs> but we, I've had them cooking with me since they were old enough to stand pretty much. And it's not a lot. It's sometimes it's just buttering their toast in the morning or stirring something in a pot or um, even just sort of sitting on the bench and watching me do it and me explaining to me to them what I'm doing. I think that's phenomenally important. It's not like all of a sudden you're going to open the doors of the kitchen when they're 18 and then <laughs> teach them everything they need to know. You know they, they need to be exposed to it from a very young age. And I think you touched on something really valuable there and that is that in the process of cooking there's conversation it's human connectedness that really is what what is what we all want and our children need. So having them around while you are cooking is a great chance for them, yeah, not only to taste things and pick things up, and but it's the conversation that happens while you're doing stuff that you have to do to feed them. Of course, of course. And, and, and you know, this is one of the things that surprised me when people say that they don't have time to cook. You're not just cooking. You're doing so much more than that in that window of however long it could be, 15 minutes, half an hour, 45 minutes if, you, if you've got plenty of time up your sleeve when you're making your, your evening meal. There's so much more that's happening than just getting food on a plate. Yeah, and also it's those um, familiar smells. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you think back to, I guess, your childhood and, and you can almost viscerally smell what's being cooked in the kitchen 30, 40, 50 years ago, um, what your parents or grandparents were making for you. And, and I think by saying you don't have enough time to cook, you're denying, I mean, I don't want to guilt anyone about no, no. this because I, I know that it's hard and I know that it does take an effort even to cook the most basic meals when you've got, you know, a couple of taps on your phone, you can get delivery. And we get delivery too. I'm not trying to say, I, I'm absolutely not trying to blame anyone for not doing that. But I think it's so worth to take the effort to do that because you're not just putting food in stomachs, you're creating memories, you're creating a family culture that your kids are going to 
take forward into the future to have a good relationship with their own families, to have a good relationship with food, to have good health. It doesn't happen in the six hours they're at school. It happens in that half an hour when they're at home with you. That's exactly right. I read an article you wrote for Good Food in which you said good food habits aren't taunt around triple chalk birthday cakes, but those are often the centrepiece for a lot of good memories. So talk to me about balance <laughs> and how do you kind of get that as a parent? You want your kids to have the, you know, the yummy stuff and we want them to eat good stuff. I just think back to my childhood. We'd go to a birthday party. And you, you look at a birthday party that we have for, for my kids now and it is not like this at all. But when I was going to a kid's birthday party, say when I was age seven or eight, there would be 15 <laughs> bowls of lollies, an entire esky full of, you know, full of soft drinks. There would be fairy floss. There would be a birthday cake. There would be cupcakes. You would eat the most unhealthy spread of food that you could ever imagine. But if you looked at my house at home, we never had potato chips. We never had even cordial. I still believe children need to have those opportunities to get maxed out on some sugar and run a bit crazy because that's childhood, isn't it? <laughs> um, however, it's what is in our pantry at home and what is in our fridge at home. It, it, it really is. And, and that trying to look at what's in your own kitchen and what you, you can control, but you can fall into a trap of not being able to plan effectively. I think that's what where the difficulty really lies. It, it, it comes from panic. And when you're panicking, you, you're not making decisions like that. But if you if you took 20 minutes at the start of your week to think, these are the things that I might eat over the course of this week, it would just be so much easier. And there were times I know as, as a really busy parent running around after four sons and working and things that I'd get home and I didn't have the time to cook that delicious mm. meal with all the vegetables and things. And I do put my hand up saying that they were able to make their own toasted ham, cheese and tomato sandwiches as many as they liked. And, you know, they did eat. Yeah, of course. And I feel that, that we need to sometimes recognise that is our number one priority to make sure our children are eating. And yes, it'd be wonderful if we can do gold standard every day, but there are some days we just do survival food. Yeah, but so even survival food can be can be quick. You know, I bet you I can cook a plate of broccoli and, and uh, <laughs> beans and carrots faster than you can make a ham and cheese totally, sandwich. Totally, absolutely. Know? And and one trick that I always try to tell parents is Try boiling your vegetables in stock. If you if your kids say they don't like vegetables, a pinch of salt and cook it in stock rather than in water and they'll look at them completely differently. You know, they go, well, what have you done to these carrots? And you've just boiled them in a bit of chicken stock. Adam, can I thank you enormously for dropping by and sharing your wisdom with us? Thanks, Maggie. My husband and I have different approaches to feeding him. So whereas I'm the more, um, he'll eat when he's hungry and let's just offer him a variety of foods and he'll choose to, to pick what he wants from there. My husband is more of a um, firm and strict believer of him eating what's on the table and uh, making him try the new foods. Sometimes there's a bit of friction there when it comes to our parenting styles, when it comes to feeding. What does he eat? He eats... Um, sushi rice, but like none of the things so, on sushi. So a, a tuna and cucumber sushi roll, but you've got to buy it, you can't make it. And then you've got to peel the seaweed off and remove any bits of green or tuna off. And then he'll eat the rice. Of course, you can't just get him a bowl of rice. He won't do that. They tend to just eat what we eat. We all, you know, we don't cook special meals for them. We all eat the same. Um, that probably has changed my cooking a little bit because I probably cook things more that I know they'll eat than what I might have cooked before. But, but they generally have a reasonable range of things. Well, Adam is an expert at getting us to eat amazingly delicious food. 
But what do the experts say about getting our kids to eat the stuff that they really, really don't want to eat? As a dietitian with Nutrition Australia, Leanne Elliston helps families throughout every stage, from introducing solids to making sure your young adults can cook more than a packet of noodles. So, so many parents of fussy eaters worry that their kids are not getting sufficient nutrition into them. So, tell me, what do they actually need? And then how do you know if the nutrition is poor or is good enough? Yeah, look, they obviously need to get a, a range of uh, nutrients from wide range of core food groups. It's really just a matter of making sure that you provide those foods for them. And we use a phrase called parent provides, child decides. So the parent is responsible for providing the food in in the wide variety in sufficient quantity to meet what child decides to eat. They know what their appetite is. If parents are getting a bit concerned or worried that their children aren't eating enough, some of the signs that we might be looking out for is, are they developing? Are they growing at their growth rate that might be specific for them? Are they really tired? Are they weak? Are they a bit pale? Are they getting sick on a regular basis, like always coming down with colds and flus and things like that? They can be early signs that there might be some deficiencies going on. But most of the time when kids are fussy, it's usually because they're just not hungry or they haven't got the appetite. And as parents, we often think that they need to be eating certain times of the day, certain amounts and making sure we meet all of our food groups. And you're just not going to meet that every day, and that's okay. <laughs> no way you're going to meet that every day. So no, I'm going to ask a, a personal kind of question here. So my three-year-old grandson recently had his tonsils out, and the ENT specialist felt he had no wonder he had problems swallowing because they were so huge. So how do we now get him to be able to try foods that were once hard to swallow that he probably could swallow now when he's decided he's never going to be able to swallow them? That can be quite tricky and kids can easily set up aversions to certain foods because they've had uncomfortable experiences around those foods, but also any other negative experiences around food, whether they're made to eat foods at the table, you get put off by those foods. I'm the same with pumpkin. Um, (laughs) We all tend to get an aversion, whether it's a physical aversion because you're afraid mm. that it might hurt you because that is what happened when you you were mm. sick or whether it's associated with a negative experience. It's about bringing those foods back into our children's diet in a very positive way, a gradual way. Even when we're introducing new foods and some kids are naturally afraid of trying new foods, we've really got to take a gradual approach and introduce those foods with foods that kids actually really like as well. So it makes that new food a bit less scary when there's familiar foods on the plate and in small quantities so it's not too overwhelming for them to, to think so about. So just don't give up forever, do don't you? Don't give up. <laughs> don't give up. And for new foods, we often say 15 times and that's oh, 15, 15 exposures. Yeah. And those first 10 exposures might not even involve putting the food in their mouth. It could be smelling it. It could be playing a rhythm on the plate, just really investigating it, throwing it to your sister. (laughs) (laughs) But just giving them that exposure and Mm. don't be afraid if they don't eat it for the first time. It could take over 10 times before they'll actually put it in their mouth and go, actually, hmm, it's not that bad. I worked out that what worked for the Dent boys was putting it all onto a large platter 
so that they took what they wanted off the plate. And, and, and what was really interesting, because if I put it on their plate and they didn't eat it, then I tended to throw it away. When it was on the platter, they took off what they wanted and then I turned the rest of it into bubble and squeak or something in the morning. And I found I didn't throw away as much and quite often accidentally they would eat the thing that they didn't usually because I was no longer trying to force it down their neck. Absolutely. And self-selection is really important, particularly for young children. They love to be able to pick up things that put on their plate and then they sort of have responsibility of what they have put on their plate. So things like burritos or tacos, they can fill their own and there's a good variety of healthy options there. And then they're more likely to eat it if they've helped to create it themselves. Every single parent has used bribery when trying to get their kids to eat, especially the good food. Leanne, explore why these techniques can possibly be problematic for our kids. I'm not a big fan of bribery and, and I completely know what it's like as a parent when that you're just at your wit's end and you say, just eat that and you can do this or just eat that and I'll give you that. And it's very easy to resort to bribery, but it's, it's not a good way to create a positive association with food, particularly healthy food. Because what it actually does is it makes that food that we're wanting the child to eat become like a negative thing, become a chore. That's right. doesn't matter what the bribe is. The less of that negative association we can attract with food, the more kids will start to accept food for what it is and food in a positive way. How should parents approach if they're worried that their child's weight is looking like it could become problematic? What, what sort of steps and how do we talk about it without it creating a that story that we keep telling ourselves forever that I'm, you know, I'm fat and I'm overweight. Yeah, look, I think we have to be really, really careful when it comes to weight and children. There's a lot out there in the media and it's, it's, it does get a little bit alarmist and everyone's worried that their child might be part of that 20% that or 25% considered in the stat of um, childhood obesity. It's such an individual thing and I would tell parents to try not to worry too much because children are growing. Think about the whole picture here. You know, there's what kids are eating, there's their physical activity levels as well, and also understanding that they've got quite a bit of time to grow. And sometimes it's really hard to necessarily say your child is overweight. The best thing is to talk to their doctor or, or see a dietitian. And often it's just getting that reassurance and sometimes picking up things early. If we can pick up that they're on a bit of a trajectory that's not heading in the right direction, we can do something at an early stage and give some guidance. I guess as they get older, they are more exposed to their friends and, and friends' choices and, yeah, more influenced by that. I think the idea of having a salad for lunch came from her and from her friends at school where she'd come home and she'd say that some of the girls were having a salad and could she have that rather than the sandwich. Sometimes I do just send a sandwich and hope for the best. <laughs> She's always been food obsessed um, and so I would say she does express her personality through food. It is a big part of her life. but. Not particularly as she's become an adolescent. I think she's always been that way. I would say the main change has been not having as much control over what she eats. So, uh, you know, where I would say, oh, there's only vegetables, fruits and, you know, good things to eat. Marley's choice will often involve more sugar, more salt than I would, um, you know, a bit more junk food than I would love, but it's pretty in check. 
in some ways he's become more restrictive because things that he used to take to school he won't accept anymore and I'm assuming that's because he's seen what other kids eat or um, whether other kids comment on what he's eating. He never says too much about it but yeah, I think when I send him healthier choice things he's sort of I know he says that he doesn't like them, but I think it, part of it's that they're different to what the other kids are having. They're not having the same sorts of things. I know with my daughter, sometimes kids tell her that, you know, her lunch doesn't look nice or if she takes something in a thermos, they can smell it and, it, oh, that doesn't smell nice. or So that upsets her a bit. Let's move into adolescence. So how do dietary needs change? with the onset of puberty and adolescence. And is it different with boys and girls, Leanne? Look, there are some variations. First of all, they're going to be really hungry. <laughs> oh, teen boys, tell me. Far out. That's where you're going to see I could, the I bottomless didn't think you pit. Could, I didn't think you could eat 10 pieces of toast after dinner until I had my own sons. And exactly. also knowing that they could grow almost like you know, um, overnight. two centimetres yeah. overnight. Like, no wonder they needed all that food. But Absolutely. Talk to us about the growth and also what are, what about the food and the mood? So we want to look for foods that are definitely going to help to fill them up, but not like really highly processed or what we would call high GI type foods. Like they just, otherwise they're just going to keep getting hungry and wanting more. Fruit juice is not really a good thing to be letting loose with a teenager. They'll drink like Two litres in one go. In one go. And that's a lot of sugar, even (laughs) though it's natural sugar within the fruit. That's a hell of a lot of sugar to put Mm. in a body at one time, and that is going to cause problems. So, being mindful of those sorts of things, because the other thing is their bones are growing. So, as they do get older and go through puberty, they do need to start to have more calcium in their diet as well, particularly the girls. One of the differences between boys and girls is that girls are going to need a little bit more iron in their diet because once they start to menstruate, they're losing blood on a regular basis. With that, they're losing iron. And that's particularly our protein foods, so our meat and meat alternatives, eggs are in there as well, and our legumes. Talk to me about the increasing numbers of teens and young adults who are becoming vegetarian or vegan, and how do you manage that as, a, as an omnivore, as a parent? <laughs> I'm actually living that right now, Maggie, <laughs> with my daughter who's decided she doesn't want to eat red meat anymore because she likes cows. And that's fine. That's her decision. I think we first of all need to respect reasons why. It's not that it's going to be unhealthy. It just means we have to be a bit more conscious of where, how we're going to get sufficient protein and in particular iron and zinc. You know, if you're going to cut out a food group or a range of foods that would otherwise provide a good amount of nutrients, where are you going to get the nutrients from, from those alternatives? So using chickpeas and kidney beans and playing around with things like tofu as well. That's not a bad thing. It's sort of widened my repertoire, that's for sure, with other other dishes that we're creating at home. This journey of adolescence is about that whole autonomy and making my own choices. So You know, this is why we hope they've got a good base around healthy eating before then, because this won't be a time where you're going to be heard starting to preach about the value of good food. And I think the other thing too, we've got to link in that body image is a really big issue. So this can become a bit problematic, Kami. This is where we can, you know, have problems with eating disorders, where psychology can collide 
with eating and food. Yeah, they're very easily influenced by uh, what's around them, whether it's their peers, their favourite celebrities, singers, sports uh, stars, whatever it might be. And looking at what those people might be eating, and this really concerns me because there's so many dietary practices out there yep. that are not healthy, yet people who look healthy promoting these sorts of things. Mm. The sorts of things that you'll be looking out for is that they didn't no longer come into the table, they don't want to eat with a family or they're not having their lunch at school, they don't want to eat in front of people. It might be because there's other underlying psychological concerns that are happening and there are dietitians and psychologists that work specifically in this space that are very clever and, and able to work with children that are starting to head down that path. And it is really important that we nip that in the bud. It just brings us back to those early stages right from when we're introducing solids and exposing children to foods in positive ways, setting up those healthy habits as they grow they're going to become very independent. They're going to make their own food choices. And what parents can do is most important is be a good role model. I have a fond memory from the past from when I was a busy working mum of always hungry boys. My good bloke Steve had been able to cook a large pot of spaghetti bowl before he left for work around midday. The boys got home before me as I had bus duty that day and as was common, they'd arrived home with a house full of mates. So by the time I arrived home, which wasn't that much later, there was just a scraping of spag bowl left in the pot. They genuinely thought that we'd made it specially for afternoon tea. <laughs> so how are you feeling now with the confusion and confidence problems that can come with feeding your children? If you're new to feeding solids, you know it's meant to be messy. It's meant to be unpredictable, and that is absolutely normal. So what they eat one week, they might not eat the next week, and it's okay, don't lay awake stressing about it. Appetites can vary for heaps of reasons, and that really the child who's not wanting to eat is not wanting to be a bad child. They're a child with a reason why today this isn't what they want to do. If you have a fussy eater for years to come, take the stress out of it. And rather than looking at how little they eat day by day, think about how much they eat over a week because it really does tend to average out. Finally, the really big message is food is so much more than putting food in your belly or your children's bellies. It's about igniting the senses, sharing experiences and building human connectedness. We all have beautiful food memories of times that we've eaten with people we love. Let's make that the focus of what happens in our homes around food. And if you want some absolute fabulous inspiration on making dinner time fun, check out last season's episode on Why Play Matters. I am so absolutely excited to be talking to Bluey's dad, Joe Brum, the creator of Bluey. It's a bit weird, my relationship with this show, because the best place a kid can be is with a bunch of other kids playing. But unfortunately, it's funnier when you're watching Bandit get fingers <laughs> shoved up his nose. So I guess if I could say anything to the people who are watching, it's like, look, it's fine. Just get them outside. You play with them when you can, but you got stuff to do. Do what you can to just get them playing with these other kids. Yep. Play really does matter. 
and that was in the last season of Parental as Anything. It's on the ABC Listen app, the Apple and Google podcast apps, and if you have a smart speaker, you can tell it to play me while you're cooking dinner. <laughs> Next time on Parental as Anything, sex. I think that the topic of porn is very topical at the moment because it's so freely available and um, certainly a lot more than what it was when we were teenagers and young. You know, one click and what you were seeing, it wasn't natural sex as far as I'm concerned. It was really quite, you know, advanced. I didn't get very far and he turned around and said, you're not going to try and have the birds and bees conversation with me, are you, Dad? And I said, oh, no, um, yeah, no, of course not. When to talk about it, how to talk about it and why you absolutely must talk about it. That's next on Parental as Anything with me, Maggie Dent. Mm-hmm.